Well, good evening. As Eric said, we are in the book of Acts. If you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 8, that's where we'll start. I have a lot of favorites in life. Like every restaurant's my favorite restaurant. <laughs> Seems like every book of the Bible is my favorite book of the Bible. My certain passage, that's my favorite passage. I love it, you know. It just depends on what kind of day it is, right? I'm not joking on this one. <laughs> the book of Acts really is one of my favorite books to teach. <laughs> and the reason why is... It's just every chapter is action-packed. It is very gripping. Luke, who's a brilliant storyteller, uses great words for imagery. He uses a lot of action words. He he really tries to explain to you, the, the reader, the emotion. He's really trying to paint a picture for each one of us through his words. And so as we read through the book of Acts, if you just kind of skim through it, you're just going to really blow past all the treasure that's sitting in there. Um, and there's a ton of it there. And in the book of, like, in chapter 8 alone, there's so much to chapter 8. Like, there was so much to chapter 7, and what's going to happen in chapter 9? It's just, you just kind of have to hold on and just start picking apart the words so it comes alive to us. And so tonight, I am going to go through, was it, 40 verses, and I'm going to try to highlight words and Verses that he's trying to get us to understand. The reason why he wrote them was for us to understand the scene that was happening. So we can get into it a little bit. So we could feel it. And so tonight, as I go through it, kind of set your mind on that. And and as we just kind of walk through it, just verse by verse, we're really just going to try to expose everything in it. I have pictures tonight that I'm going to show. And so this is your opportunity For those of you in the back, you can move forward if you would like. And I'll give you one more shot. You guys can move forward if you want, but if you're fine where you're at, that's okay. You might have to squint a little bit. So as we open up in chapter 8, let me pray, and then we'll start. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus over this passage of Scripture. What it does tell me is after your resurrection, that you empowered the church to do mighty things in your name. And here we are 2,000 years later, and our forefathers from back then, because of what they had witnessed and seen and what they believed, despite the persecution, and there was heavy persecution, they spread the word, and we inherited it. So we are in debt to Many, many Christians' lives that have been slain for the word, have been put in prison for the word. And so who are we, Father, not to uh, take this seriously? And if we are called upon to speak the name of Jesus Christ to someone, regardless of the situation, whatever persecutions in our face, Father, would you give us the, the strength to be able to do it like Stephen did it in Acts 7? Give us the boldness and give us the words And we know it's, anytime you face trials, it's tough, but when we read sections of scripture like we're going to read tonight, it prepares our minds and our hearts, and it gives us a little bit more faith to where we can withstand anything. And it gives us a knowledge about who you are as well. And so, Father, just, I plead with you to speak through me. Would you speak to the people? And would you give me, the Holy Spirit would come upon me and everybody in here to be able to understand it and live it out. And so we do welcome you here. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul is... Paul the Apostle, prior to his conversion, the man who was responsible for writing a third of the New Testament. And the death he's consenting to was in chapter 7, what Eric taught last week, and that's Stephen. 
the first martyr of the church. And Paul is sitting here consenting because he's in authority. He's in authority over other people. Paul is a murderer. He wanted to commit genocide. He wanted to get rid of all the people who were Christians. He was no different than a Hitler. He just didn't have the tools and the weapons and and everything around him, but he wanted to eliminate Christians. He wanted to eliminate Christianity. He hated it, absolutely hated it. So he's consenting to his death. So our apostle Paul that we look up to and we read, he's a murderer. And that's why he's like, I'm the chief of sinners. He's telling the church, I don't know why I'm in this position. I am the chief of sinners. And I, I bet he thought about this every single day, about who he was before the Lord prior to his conversion and who he was and how God's grace saved him. But here we have it right here. And at that time, continuing on, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. What kind of persecution? Great. Another word for great would be enormous, huge. Persecution was happening to the church. Everybody probably thought after Jesus' resurrection, everything was going to be great. And maybe even in your mind, you're thinking, well, the church just took off. 3,000 got saved on Pentecost, 50 days after uh, the Passover. But what we see in, this, in, in the book of Acts was another story. The church was being persecuted heavily, heavily. And Paul, Saul, was at the center of it. He was directing it. And this, the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, for whatever reason, Paul... Luke wants us to understand that the apostles stayed put in the middle of all this persecution that was happening in Jerusalem. So that's like church headquarters, Jerusalem. And it will stay church headquarters for the rest of the book of Acts. But the rest of the church seemed to flee. That's how bad the persecution was. That is like saying, if that happened to Colorado Springs, the persecution hit Colorado Springs you really would not have a choice but to flee and get out and maybe move to like Trinidad, which would be serious persecution in and of itself. Or wherever, you could just imagine if you had to leave your home, your job, your family, everything, and get off out of here because of the persecution, because you're just a Christian. There are people like in Syria right now who are fleeing Syria because they are Christians. Right now, our brothers and sisters in Christ in many parts of the world, specifically Syria, are fleeing for their lives just like this because the persecution is so heavy, so heavy. But the apostles, for whatever reason, Luke wants us to know, they stayed put in the midst of this persecution, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. When I see the word great lamentation, you're talking Weeping and wailing, his pallbearers were very devout men. Men of good stature, men of good reputation. And they went to the burial and it was just weeping. The city of Jerusalem was just in turmoil. Absolute turmoil. The church did not know what to do. Jesus just died and rose again and gave them power. And now they're being persecuted. What in the world is going on? Stephen does a, just a brilliant sermon. It should have convinced anybody who just heard it. Instead, he gets killed for it. And then look what happens in verse 3. And Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. You see what I'm saying? Look at these little words that Luke throws in here. What does havoc look like in action? What's havoc? Havoc's a very strong word. He is so angry at the church, and he is just, he's a terrorist to the church, an absolute terrorist to the church. He's wreaking havoc over it. He's completely broken it apart, and he's really causing a lot of persecution by entering in every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Not just men and not just women. We don't know about the children. What do you do? Just leave the children there? We don't know what happened. But parents, men and women, were getting thrown in prison because of this. So, what happens? Right? 
And this is a strange thing that's happening because here's Paul or Saul, Paul the Apostle, who becomes the greatest missionary that I know of, and I can sit up here and say that with 100% conviction, he is to me the greatest missionary that we have. Can you imagine not having Paul's teachings? Right here, Paul's persecution creates a missionary movement. Go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Jesus said, I'm going to give you power to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the world. So you guys, the church, he's saying will be missional. You are going to go out and you are going to spread the gospel. And this is how Jesus starts it. He creates persecution within Jerusalem. And he uses Saul to do that. And then they just go, boom, they go out and fulfill his commandment. And they probably didn't think that's the way it was going to come about. But they go out and they start preaching. But here you got this thing. Paul creates a missionary movement and then gets converted and saved and becomes the biggest missionary that the church has and has ever had. Isn't that kind of strange? Isn't that kind of weird? I was thinking about that the other day. And it says in verse 4, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So why would they leave Jerusalem? Because they were afraid. They couldn't live life. They would have been thrown into prison. They were probably concerned for their kids or whatever, so they just get up and go, but that doesn't stop them from proclaiming the good news and the gospel. In Jerusalem, they would have been thrown in prison for this, and they take the chance when they go out into Judea and to Samaria, and they just start proclaiming the gospel, and Paul's persecution caused all that to happen. Then Philip. So Philip was maybe a colleague of Stephen. They were one of the chosen men, the honored men to serve tables and with orphans and, or with the widows and whatnot. But Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, how many are multitudes? Everybody say a lot. A lot of people, right? With one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out or crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed and there was great joy in that city of Samaria like a dichotomy going on Jerusalem's weeping and then this place that we're going to talk about Samaria which is a really unlikely place to have a bunch of joy has a ton of joy because they received the gospel and so Philip goes to Samaria, and not only does he proclaim, but he has the Holy Spirit upon him where he can heal the paralyzed and the lame, and he can cast out demons. And as Jesus was going around and he was proclaiming the gospel, he was also doing that. And so that validated who he was. He's God on the earth. And then when Jesus left, he says, I'm going to give you this power, and you're going to do the same things. And here's Philip doing them, but he's proclaiming Christ, it says. He's not proclaiming Philip. He's proclaiming Christ. So the Holy Spirit comes upon Philip to be able to do these things in power. And these signs, these miracles are accompanying the gospel and the words of Philip to where people now would come to Christ. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus, church. Anytime somebody is saying that they have the Holy Spirit upon them and they're trying to bring tension to themselves or they're not even proclaiming the name of Jesus, watch out because it's not of Jesus. It's of a guy like Simon the sorcerer we're going to talk about here in the next passage. But if somebody is proclaiming the name of Jesus and it's about Jesus and they're not about themselves and they have power like you've never seen before in speech or in healing or whatever, that's of God. But uh, it's always about Jesus, and it's, it's about Jesus here with Philip as well. That's his message, the central theme and the message in the book of Acts is Jesus, and it's really the acts of the Holy Spirit, not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit really is the famous one in the book of Acts. He is. And he is the one that Luke consistently highlights. He's never elevating man over the Holy Spirit. That never happens. It's always the Holy Spirit. It's always the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit should always point to Jesus. We learn that in John chapter 14. Jesus talks to the Father and says, would you send the Holy Spirit? 
And then the Father, the Holy Spirit hears from the Father, and then the Holy Spirit's job is to testify of the Son. That's how it goes. In uh, verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is great, is the great power of God. And they heeded him because this, he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And Simon himself also believed. And when they had baptized, he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing miracles and signs which were done. So here's this man with crazy amount of authority in the region of Samaria, in the city of Samaria. He says, all the people looked at him, and all the people heeded what Simon would have to say, and he could do sorceries. The least to the greatest looked to Simon the sorcerer, and they could attributed his power to the power of God. But when Philip comes in, like Simon is just like, who's Simon? So there's a man of great clout, a man of extreme authority. Everybody revered Simon because he could produce something, but he was a sorcerer. And they never attributed his power with Jesus Christ. They didn't care. They just thought it was of God. And so they revered him. And I'm telling you right now, sorcerers are real. I talked about this two Wednesdays ago when we led a witch doctor to Christ in Uganda. The witch doctors in Uganda, they're real. No doubt about it. And some of you know of palm readers, tarot card readers, and things like that. Wait, what power do you think that they can tell the future, and they do, what power do you think they're getting that from? Do you think that's of God? Well, of course not it's not of God because it's not about Jesus. So where are they pulling that power from? I'm telling you right now, I have family members who dabbled in that stuff and they were telling them things that were going to happen the next day. In two weeks, they were talking about things that were going on in the family currently. There's no way they could have known that stuff. And they were drawing it from power. And that's here in America. You go over in Uganda and those places, this stuff is real. And Simon, I guarantee, was producing results that came from Satan. But he was trying to get the power to him. We're seeing. So before we move on in the book of Acts, I want to stop for a second because we're dealing with a city called Samaria. We're dealing with the people and they're Samaritans. And if we don't understand where Samaria is and it's enrolled within Scripture, we're really going to pass by why this, this, this Scripture right here that we're reading, why it's so powerful. So I'm just going to take briefly just a few minutes to explain Samaria to you and what a Samaritan is so you can not only understand this, but you can understand other parts of the passage. And by the time I get done explaining it, you'll see why it's such a big deal that Philip is going to Samaria, Okay. I got pictures for you guys. We have to go back in history. And we'll take you back in the Old Testament. And this will help you understand the Old Testament as well. You go back into the, David's dynasty and Solomon's dynasty. They had all the land. You had 12 tribes. And it was all divided up. And God divided it up with all the children of Jacob and and uh, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which was Joseph's sons, his grandchildren. And that land was given to them by God. And nobody was to take that land away from them because it was freely given to them by God. So their identity was wrapped up into the land. This is way before Jesus' time, like a thousand or so years before Jesus' time. So David came on the scene, and God really blessed Israel. Really blessed Israel just like it was prophesied. And then here comes Solomon, his son, and really increased the land. And so David's dynasty and Solomon's dynasty really increased the land. But they had strict law 
we find in Deuteronomy that they were to follow. If they followed it, they would be blessed. But if they didn't, they would be cursed. Very important to understand this. Because this is where how this whole Samaritan thing gets lumped in here and why the Jewish people can't stand the Samaritans and the Samaritans can't stand the Jewish people. Okay, so around 722 B.C., well, actually, go before that. So Solomon dies, and normally his natural heir, Rehoboam, would take over, but the people did not want Rehoboam, half the people did not want Rehoboam to take over, right? And there was a guy up north named Jeroboam, a very charismatic man, and a lot of the children of Israel wanted him to take over. So there was a split in the dynasty. So Jeroboam took the northern half of Israel. Rehoboam took the southern half. So when you're in the book of Kings, you understand this, right? So there was a split in the land. And for many, several hundred years, the north was just horrendous. 19 kings, not one of them was good. And they kept on breaking the commands in Deuteronomy over and over and over. And they were to get cursed, and they were to get cursed. The southern kingdom was a little better, but not much better. Okay? And the southern kingdom was Judah and Benjamin, two tribes. The northern kingdom was ten tribes. You guys tracking with me? Okay. Clear as mud? Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom in Judah. And then they refer to the northern side as Israel. So Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. In 722, God was fed up with the northern kingdom. And so he used these wicked, barbaric, very intelligent warmongers called the Assyrians. And it came in. And they were masters of war, and this is how they would punish the people. They took, they knew that the land was their identity, so they'd take them, all these Jewish people, the ten tribes, take them from their land and disperse them or deport them into all areas around Israel. So they were in Babylon, they were in Assyria, and they'd just spread them all out, right? And then they would move other people in there from like Babylon. They would take them and mess with their minds as well. So they would completely take the people away from each other and they would remove their identity. And they, had, they just had no identity. And so they could never rise up against Assyria and take them down. So this is what happens. He didn't remove, the Assyrians did not remove everyone from the northern kingdom. There were still some Jewish people there around Samaria. And the Assyrians put Samaria as the capital. And so these people from Babylon and Assyria, they would come and they would mix with the Jewish people there in Samaria. And next thing you know, the syncretism happened. And it was, so the Jewish people would start leading these other people into their religion, into Judaism. But then they would start bringing this idolatry from the other religions and it just started mixing up and it just got all messed up and nasty and it had nothing really to do with God, right? And it got to the point where they only believed in like five books of the Bible, the first five books. And that was even a little bit distorted, and so then the Jewish people saw this as, these people are half-breeds. They're Samaritans. That's where they got the name Samaritans. And so when the Babylonians came in and took the southern kingdom out in 587, and then the Babylonians were in charge of everything. They defeated the Assyrians. And then we had the Persians that come in. This is where you get the book of Daniel and all this stuff now, right? And the Persians came in and conquered the land. Well, then the Persians had a little bit of favor with the Jewish people. And then we get the book of Ezra. Where the king says, you can go back into your land and start building your temple. Rebuild your temple. And then these people from Samaria is like, well, we want part of this. And so in chapter 4 of Ezra, you see the Israelites are like, there's no way you're having a part of this. You guys are all messed up up there. And they, uh, they've always been in dissension since then. And it just always got worse and worse and worse, this relationship, because these Samaritans were like half-breeds that only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, while the Jewish people believed in the whole canon, all 39 books that we have of the Old Testament. Okay, so you guys understand this, you get, get it? That's why the Jewish people hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jewish people. So if you don't understand that, you're going to miss the power of this because here we have now Philip going into this land that the Jewish people hated. They hated Samaria so bad. So this is Jerusalem right here. Let's just do this map right here. Say so this is Jerusalem. You guys see this? Jerusalem. Right above it is Samaria. This right here would be Judea, like after Jesus' day. And this right here would be Samaria. This is what they consider Samaria in Jesus' day. And like pretty much right in the middle is the city of Samaria. 
okay? Philip was going into this region. So the Jews, when they were scattered, and all the Christians were scattered, they're going into Judea and into Samaria. They were leaving Jerusalem and going into this region. And Philip right here is in this circle right here in Samaria. And he's proclaiming the good news, which the Jews completely did not like. And so he was going in there and leading them to Christ. And they were receiving it with joy. And this right here now matches up with Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You're going to go out into the world and you're going to go into the places even like Samaria. So this was the way God, um, this is the way he planned it. And that's how, um, and this is where we're at today, or in this reading right now. In verse 14, as we read, it says, And when the apostles were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Now, they were like, Samaria just received the word of God, these people that we could not stand? And even in all of Jewish history, we just could not stand them? And here we are, now these people are coming to Christ. And so they sent their top, one of their top two people, Peter and John, to go see what was going on up there in Samaria. Who, when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. So they were being baptized, but he hasn't fallen upon them yet because it said they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there is a distinction. So salvation is one thing, and then having the power of the Holy Spirit is another. We see that right here, and we saw it back in Acts chapter 1. When the Holy Spirit fell upon all those people, they were already saved because they believed in the resurrection. They were being baptized. But here we have it that the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit would fall upon people. That's not, and I want to just talk about this for a second. There's a lot of confusion over this matter. And a lot of people are walking around feeling like, I mean, I don't have the Holy Spirit. I've never had one of those moments. I never started speaking in tongues. I don't have the gift of healing. And I don't think it's a one way or another approach. I think sometimes you could be saved and it all happens at one time, but there is a definitely a distinction right here that they were saved, they heard the message, they believe in the resurrection, they believe in Christ and the gospel. And then yet, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so right here, Peter and John come up, and they're like, oh, you've only been baptized in the name of Jesus. I'm going to lay hands on you, and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, and then they had laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Like, are you serious? Like, why, like, what are you thinking? But see, it was always about Simon. He wanted to purchase this power of the Holy Spirit that he, that he witnessed, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You know why he was interested in this? Because there was something actually happening when the Holy Spirit fell upon people. It wasn't just, I'm going to pray for you and nothing happens. There must have been some sort of action after they had prayed the Holy Spirit upon people to where he would say, I want that power. Whatever you have, whatever you're giving them, I want it. How much does it cost? And so Peter has something to say about that to him. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And so here we have this situation that just, I'm sure it was tense. Peter was really upset. Simon wants to purchase this power and he doesn't understand it. Is Simon saved or not saved? I don't have a clue. I don't know here. Only God knows that. 
but he believed in the resurrection. He believed in the baptism. At one point, he subjected himself to it. He was the man on the scene. He was the top. And he's just like, whatever Philip's saying, I want that. And he actually came under subjection to Philip and would actually follow Philip around as a disciple of Philip's. And so was he saved? Was he not saved? I am not sure. But whatever he said, Peter didn't care much for it. And he said, you better repent. But what's interesting is, if, when you catch this, it's like he's saying, well, Peter, will you pray for me? Like, no, you probably need to pray for yourself, right? I don't think any man's prayer is going to put God's forgiveness upon you. And so I don't know. It's just weird how he responded to that whole thing. And hopefully we see him in heaven. We really do. Um, but what we have here is Simon the sorcerer doing many miracles through sorcery to where everybody from the least to the greatest thought he was the best thing ever to where they even contributed to he has the power of God. The power of God. And yet, when Philip comes in, his power is way better. It's way more powerful. So the power we see here of Jesus is way more powerful than anything Satan can throw up. That's encouraging to me. Because we have that power. And if we're just willing vessels, may God will use us to have that power. But it has to be for Jesus. And it has to be in Jesus' time, not our time. So as we read this passage of Scripture right here, we can see that the power of Christ, the power of God, far exceeds the power of Satan in what Simon the sorcerer was proclaiming. In verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert. So he's going to leave Samaria, and he does it because an angel talks to him about it, right? So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So here's this man from Ethiopia. And to give you some sort of idea, Ethiopia. By the way, see Uganda right there? I just thought I'd point that out. Um, it's future home. And so Ethiopia is right next to it. For a man to travel 2,500 miles on horseback or through the chariot, what kind of man does that to go worship God? How devout would that man have to be? On horseback, this may take you I was just thinking about it and trying to compute it. Over one month getting there. Then to come back one month. So two months of travel to go worship God. And we know this started when the queen of Ethiopia heard of Solomon and how his wise teachings. And the, she heard about it all the way down here, 2,500 miles away back in Solomon's day and went to go visit Solomon. And now it sounds like you know, the people of Ethiopia started becoming Jewish, and this man is coming up to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, right? What kind of man would this be? I'm assuming it would be a man who is a great authority with probably a lot of influence and has a heart for God, and God sends him up this far to hear these words, and the angel's like, I have a divine appointment for you, Philip. You run down to Gaza, and I got something for you. You're going to find an Ethiopian eunuch, man of great authority on a chariot, and he's reading. And I want you to go and share something with him. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So you get a picture of this. And so here goes Philip, right? He ran to him. So I'm assuming the chariot's going, and this man is reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he overtakes this chariot. He runs to him. Do you understand what you are reading? 
he says. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. It's Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? This was a prophecy about 800 years prior to Christ that was speaking through Isaiah. It was about Christ. It's a lamb before the slaughter, the sheep before a shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that's how Christ went to the cross. I understand that's... When, I, when, a, when a Jewish person, and I just want to know, like, I want to speak to them and say, like, when you read Isaiah 57, 3, and Psalms 23, and Genesis 3, 15, all these prophecies that talked about the Messiah coming and dying, these suffering servant Psalms and these passages and the prophets, like, why don't you believe but they weren't thinking that the Messiah was going to die. They thought he was going to overtake Rome and get the land back and restore the dynasty, restore the kingdom. But that was never the plan. The plan was that he was to be persecuted and he was to die, and that's what was going to spread the gospel. It was his ultimate act of love that would spread the gospel, and it was through the death on the cross. And sometimes I just don't understand. It's like, how are you interpreting the old, your, your, your Bible, the the 39 books of the Old Testament, how do you interpret it when you come across these sections? Because it's pretty plain and clear. And then Philip says, this is what it's about. It's about Christ. So the, so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. So this whole thing is about Jesus right here, that passage. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So he baptized him. It doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit coming upon him, by the way. Did you notice that? It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit didn't come upon him. It just didn't mention it. But baptism was what Luke was centering on here. And he walked away with joy, rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And that's where he stayed. The oceanside city of Caesarea, beautiful location, I understand. And Paul ends up visiting him and his four daughters, the prophetesses, and was ministered there at Philip's home later on in the book of Acts, as you will read later on, many weeks from now. So the command in Acts 1.8 Jerusalem, you're going to go there with my power. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, we see, is reached, and you're going to stay there, and you're going to preach the gospel. That's the hub. And you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. That just happened right here. And that happened because of persecution. And then when this Ethiopian eunuch, a man of enormous influence and a man of passion for God and worship of God, comes, an angel guides Philip to go talk to him and explain this one little passage of Scripture which led him to Christ. And that's to the other ends of the earth, 2,500 miles away. I'm going to consider that one to the other ends of the earth, right? And right here, we already have something that no man can plan. Only the Holy Spirit and God would do it. And it's the mission of God, and it's to go to proclaim his name wherever, but he's in control, and Luke's wanting us to know that. It's all about the Holy Spirit guiding and directing. But this is what it also tells you, that sometimes God uses persecution for his kingdom and for his glory, and he will put you and me and any other believer in the way 
of any persecution in order for the kingdom of God to happen, you have to own that. You have to understand this because most of the time, I know speaking for myself, if I run into any sort of persecution, what happens? You're going to hear me complain? I'm going to try not to talk bad about that person who's persecuting me. And I'm going to try to get out of it because it's uncomfortable. There's some times where I create my own persecution. I understand that. But there, are, there have been times because of my Christian belief that someone would slightly persecute me. But I've never been through anything like this. I've never been through what people are going through right now in Syria and Egypt. I've never been there. But this is what I do know. He, he uses persecution to advance his church so more people would hear about Christ. And if you are a Christian, that means you have to own your identity in Christ. And if Christ is crucified, why do you get out of it? And why would I get out of it, that calling? You know why we endure it? Because there's a resurrection on the other side. So we're dead to this world. We're alive to Christ. If, if my life has to be taken for the sake of the kingdom and for for the church, for the glory of God, I pray I have the power and the willingness to stand up and do that. But I see that God uses persecution sometimes as a tool to spread his word. And right now, some of you may be going through that. Maybe not look like this, but you may be going through it. Now, hopefully it's not self-inflicted persecution. Because sometimes God uses that, like the Assyrians, to come and correct you. But other times, if you're just obedient, flat out obedient to the Lord and you're being persecuted at work or whatever, how are you to respond? You are to go to God and say, it's your kingdom first, not mine. And what would you have me to do in this situation? Because many times when you're persecuted and you suffer, someone else sees that and says, what on earth is happening in their life to where they would stand up strong and respond in gentleness when their cheek is slapped? Or respond in such a way when your enemy tells you to take the bag one mile and you take it two. Why do they do that? Who do they, who do they, what do they believe in? And next thing you know, that persecutor, that Paul or Saul, comes to Christ and has enormous amount of influence. And the church explodes. You don't know God's plan. But sometimes he wants to use us to be persecuted for his glory. Don't always run from it. Stop and pray and talk to the Lord about it. Are you supposed to endure it or is this one of those ones that you're supposed to just flee? Because the apostles stayed put, but the rest of the people fleed. Were they disobedient? No, God was using them. God was using them, but as they were fleeing, they were proclaiming the name of Jesus. They just didn't go into hiding. They were proclaiming the name of Jesus. It just was not realistic and safe for them to stay there. But as they went, God used that. If he did not persecute Stephen through Paul, and if Stephen did not die a martyrdom's death, do you think they would have scattered out throughout Samaria and Judea on their own at the time that God wanted them to? Probably not. So he used that to scatter them out, to proclaim his name. And then he'll use an angel to speak to Philip to go proclaim it to a man. He doesn't even have to go down to Ethiopia. He can just talk to the man that come up 2,500 miles away and says, that right there, that man, I want you to talk to him because then he's going to take that message down, go down to Ethiopia and proclaim the name down there and start the church, which we don't have any record of in the Bible. But who knows? It could have been just as exciting as Paul's journeys, right? And that's how the church started. That's it. And it was the Holy Spirit working. It's through Philip, Saul's persecution, the church being obedient to proclaim in the name of the Lord. It's the Ethiopian eunuch just opening up scriptures and reading them. And then Philip runs and overtakes his chariot. And the people less, that the Jews hated the most, the Samaritans, they were lower than the average Gentile. And God's like, I want them. I want you to go. And the early church is like, I know culture says don't do it, but I'm doing it. I'm going. So I'm so encouraged that we're looking at Detroit as a mission field. Because there are so many Christians that hate Muslims. And God's like, I want them. I want them to know their heavenly father. And so we're starting to do work in Detroit. We got our first mission trip going on April 30th. We're going, and here's the beautiful thing. All these nations are coming. 
All of these different nations, these places that we can't even get to, Yemen. We can't even go to Yemen. We'll get persecuted like immediately. Before we even get off the plane, we'd be arrested, right? And they're coming to Detroit, and now they're coming to Christ. And now you know what? They're going to go back. And so we see this happening, and our church is involved there now. We have some missionaries on the ground, and we're looking to play in a church in Detroit in a couple of years, hopefully, if God wills it, or at least look into it. We've got people sitting in Morocco right now, 99.9% Muslim. If they say, if they go out and preach the name of Jesus, they can get thrown out or arrested. And they're there right now. Why? Because God loves them. And God has a plan for them. God had a plan for them back in Genesis, if you go back and look at Ishmael. And he said, go be a blessing to them. Go be a blessing. But sometimes we get off, off kilter a little bit as a church. And I'm not saying it's us. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, I know it's a big swath I'm, I'm painting the church with. But we got to make sure that the ones that are outcasted, the ones that are like, I'm not going to them. I'll go somewhere else, but I'm not going to them. That's where the church goes. The homosexual community. If the church doesn't go there, who's going? The drug community. If the church is not going, then who's going? That's where we go into. We go to the places, the Samarias of the world. And we, we reach to the Samaritans. And not understanding this animosity and this hatred of Samaria isn't it pretty crazy when Jesus says, yeah, this priest and this Levite just passed this guy on the side of the road hurting, and this Samaritan comes and takes care of him? Who do you think is in the will of God here, guys? They're like the Samaritan. They're probably like, oh, did you, what did you just say? What did you just say? It's a big deal that Samaria is being reached. Big deal. I'm encouraged when I read this passage of Scripture like I'm encouraged when I read every chapter of the book of Acts and then every chapter of the Bible, you know, for that matter. It's my favorite. <laughs> if we were to find application, it's this, simply this. God's on the move. He hasn't come back yet. So that means he's not done building the church. And wherever you're at, Plant yourself in bloom and proclaim the name of Jesus. If you're persecuted for the name of Jesus, that's okay. That's what the church is here for, to build you up and encourage you, to teach you, to edify you, to get you back out there so you can withstand another day. Don't always run from persecution. The Holy Spirit is... The famous one in the book of Acts, he's the main character and he still is. And the Holy Spirit wants to move through you and in you as long as you're willing to submit it to Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit, I do not believe any of the gifts have ceased. I believe God uses them when he wants to use them and I believe he'll, he'll give them to you if he wants you to have them. But be willing to have them if you're going to proclaim the name of Jesus. But if it's about you, then you know you're off. So make sure, take some spiritual inventory, make sure you want to make Jesus famous and not yourself. And proclaim his name and power because it's here and it's given to us. It's, the power is to never cease until Jesus comes back. So when you pray to God, ask for the Holy Spirit. And when you're praying, you'll always, it's about God's kingdom first. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's not about Kent's kingdom. So when I can always look to God's kingdom and always look to Jesus Christ, and then the power comes when it's all about Jesus and it's all about God and it's about people coming into a relationship, it's about souls being saved. That's what we have a story of here. And he wants to use you to communicate to people so they can come into a relationship with their heavenly father. And that's all through the Holy Spirit. So let's take spiritual inventory tonight. When you wake up tomorrow morning, I encourage all of us, myself included, to stop and pray and think about who Christ is to us and that we belong to him and that he wants to use us like he used to use that church there and we keep those in mind who are being persecuted as well. Keep those in mind who are being persecuted. And let's take this calling seriously 
It's not some club. It's real. And he's coming back. But until then, we have orders. We have a command. And that's to go to and preach the gospel to everywhere we possibly can. To every soul that'll listen. And if they don't listen, we'll preach it more than once to them. Because that's what we've been called to do. And we just ask for the Holy Spirit to just go forth. Amen? Amen. Isn't this your favorite section of Scripture? Father, I pray, oh, that the the scripture just be alive to us. I pray that it would, if any of us have been apathetic towards it whatsoever, if any of us have thought of the Holy Spirit as less than Jesus or God, that we would repent. That you want the Holy Spirit to be in our lives to proclaim the name of Jesus with power and authority. And even if these, these miracles and things don't happen as it happened to Philip. That's okay because we are only to desire the gifts of the Spirit, but we are to pursue love. And as we look to Jesus, we see an enormous amount of love. And we study the life of Jesus, we learn about love. And so, Father, help us to love people. And help us to see them the way you see them. I'm sure Philip loved those people. And Peter and John heard about this news, they loved him. And then they loved that, Philip loved that Ethiopian eunuch, but he loved you more. And he was obedient to you. And so, Father, just use us as a church to love people. Use us as a church to proclaim in the name of Jesus. And I ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to fall upon this church and that we would be used as vessels the way you want us to be used and you create us to be used in such a time as this. And so as I pray, Father, I just thank you for your grace and your mercy. And I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for this church. I pray for every person, Lord, that they would just sink into the relationship with you because that's what it's all about. This life's about you and nothing else. So, Father, I thank you for tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.